0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our goal on these SALT Talks is the same as our goal at our SALT conference series, which is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And we're very excited today to bring you a talk focusing on the future of medicine within the psychedelic space uh, with two fantastic guests. Our first guest today is J.R. Ron, who's the co-founder and co-CEO of MindMed, a leading psychedelic medicine biotech company that discovers, develops, and deploys psychedelic-inspired medicines and therapies to address addiction and mental illness. JR is a former Silicon Valley tech executive who was previously at Uber and attended the prestigious tech accelerator Y Combinator. After his own struggles with mental health and addiction in Silicon Valley, he began looking for a new treatment paradigm with the potential to solve mental health and addiction-related issues. JR began personally investing in psychedelic medicine projects and research through his family office, Ron Capital, and then went on to found the biotech company MindMed to focus on developing psychedelic medicines under the federally compliant FDA pathway. MindMed was the first psychedelic medicine biotech to publicly list on a stock exchange, and the company now garners a $1 billion-plus market cap. The company has filed an uplisting application for a potential listing of its shares on the NASDAQ. And our second guest today is Saad Shah, whose firm, Noetic, is actually an investor in MindMed. But Saad is the co-founder and managing partner of Noetic, a venture capital firm that seeks to invest in emerging and early stage psychedelic-based wellness, therapeutic and pharmaceutical companies around the world. Saad has spent the last 22 years in capital markets and the asset management industry with a focus on alternative investment strategies. Prior to founding Noetic, Saad was a managing director at the Carlisle Group. He's also the co-founder and managing partner at Greyhouse Partners, a venture capital, uh, venture capital at Alpha Partners and an affiliate partner at Lindsey Goldberg and a venture advisor to Learn Capital LLC. He's also a filmmaker, a script writer and producer and a board member of the Necessary Angel Theater in Toronto and the Council of Advisors for the Windy Museum in Los Angeles. Hosting today's talk is Anthony Scaramucci, the founder and managing partner at Skybridge Capital, a global alternative investment firm. Anthony's also the chairman of SALT, And with that, I'll turn it over to Anthony for the interview.
1: Well, guys, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, I'm going to start with JR, if that's okay. I would like you, JR, to give our audience a broad overview of the thesis behind psychedelics for medical use, but also take us through your personal journey to how you got to MindMed.
2: Well, thank, thank you, Mr. Scaramucci. Um, look, I think. Psychedelics- you got, you
1: got, Jr. You got to call me Anthony, okay? Because in a few minutes, John Darcy and I are going to be beating the hell out of each other, okay? And I have to feel young for that experience. Because you got to call me Anthony. All
3: right, all right, uh, all right. I'll, I, you got
2: it, Anthony. Right. Um, look, I think you know if we if we take a step back here um, and and look at this space, we're we're really have created and founded a new asset class. Um, this is a this is a, bio, a new biotech asset class um, that is focused on mental health. And while it might be based on substances from the 1960s that have associations, um, you know, like LSD and, and psilocybin, really what we're focused on is mental health and how do we heal people. Uh, and that's really where the journey for MindMed began, which is uh, the first publicly listed uh, psychedelic biotech company. Um, I was at the height of my career in Silicon Valley. I was, I was working at Uber and then went through the Y Combinator program um, and was faced with some severe addiction and mental health issues. And to the outside world, everything was going fine. You know, I was, I was a, a struggling with, with my addictions, but um, you know, working well and, and, and getting things accomplished in Silicon Valley until a friend really told Don't me. Don't
1: mind me asking, because I'm from a family of addicted disorders. Sure. And, uh, uh, so what was your addiction of choice or what was not choice, but what was the thing that yeah. you, were, you were drawn to? And, and, I, and, I, and I want to stipulate for the purposes of SawTalk, uh, coming from an addictive families that have addictive disorders, I recognize that it is an illness. It is not a choice. So I didn't mean to say it that way. Um, uh, but what, what was, what was drawing you in Jr?
2: Well, I think you do have the choice to, to do something about it. Right. I think, you know, it definitely is an illness, yeah. but it takes, you definitely have a choice to do something about it, but
1: I do think that once you're caught up in it, it's a, it's a, it's a hard cycle to
2: break because of the biochemistry in your body. Sure. Would that be fair to say? Totally. Um, so my, my drugs of choice were, were cocaine and alcohol. Okay. Um, and, uh, Really struggled with this, you know, basically from the beginning of college, right? And and, in, and even in, in high school, um, I, I think that goes back to um, you know struggles with with ADHD and mental health. Being put on stimulant based medicines from the age of thirteen, uh, you really start to develop patterns. And you're right, it is a it is a brain illness, and it is a mental illness. Um, and those patterns start early uh, as a kid. And so they you know that really culminated uh, in Silicon Valley for me. And I had a friend turn to me uh, at one point and say, "Look, you're going to put yourself into a grave." I had other friends die. Uh, you know, these are folks that were working. You know, at large tech companies, die of overdoses. Um, you know, die of. Uh, you know, th- these are really serious diseases. And so I, I decided that I wanted to make a change. Right? You know, it was. It was I was either going to die or I, I was going to solve the problem. And so I didn't really see the traditional routes of of uh, addiction treatment and how we treat mental health in America uh, as really effective ways of, of dealing with these problems.
1: OK, so let, let me interrupt again, if you don't mind, and just talk a little bit about that for our viewers. So sure. the traditional treatments are a 12-step program. Mm-hmm. DC Alcohol Anonymous uh, manual. It's going to a rehab center perhaps for 28 days. Uh, There's some psychotherapeutic uh, treatment to that. And then there's also the conditioning process of attending meetings, either a Narcanon meeting or an Alcohol Anonymous meeting where you're laying out your story and you're sharing. And so one of the things that we have found with these diseases by making it communal and bridging a gap and having people help each other, creating that matrix, It sustains people's ability to stay off of the the addiction, and so your therapeutic idea is what, Jr.
2: Well, look, I I just want to call out that I think that Alcoholics Anonymous and and NNA are uh, important pieces to solving addiction. Yes, Uh, I think there are, you know, actually what what people forget is that the thirteenth step of of AA was actually supposed to be an LSD trip. By the, that was that was what it was originally thought of to be by by the founder uh, that never happened because of the 1960s but I, I think it's important to point that out um, our our paradigm really is looking at how do we create catalysts for change in your behavior that uh, when you're dealing with both addiction and ruminating thoughts about anxiety or depression you really need that catalyst and some people can do it without a psychedelic but what what I found was that Psychedelic medicine is not going to be a panacea to solve all of our problems in society. However, they can be catalysts for us to change our behavior. And there's still a lot of work that needs to go in. Before
1: before we get to sad, and we are going to get to him in a second, I want to push you a little bit on psychedelics, (laughs) So uh, because there's a stigma to psychedelics, right? You know, we have that the mushroom, the LSD and the hippie. It's, It's created this 50 year stigma to psychedelics, but yet. There are people that attribute psychedelics to giving them major breakthroughs in life and major transformation in the way they think about planet Earth. So step back for people that don't know a lot about psychedelics. Sure. Tell us a little bit about the origin. And, and Saad, forgive me for one sec. We're going to get to you in a moment. But I want you to give this introduction to people that are not familiar with psychedelics and don't need to be afraid of psychedelics. Uh, they need to be
2: informed about them. So sure. go ahead, Jail. Sure. Yeah, so I mean modern psychedelics, the, the things that we talk about like LSD, were really invented inside pharmaceutical companies. They were invented at Sandoz Laboratories, which is now part of the pharmaceutical group Novartis. Um, many uh, folks might have heard of something called Bicycle Day, which is the, the infamous day that LSD was actually discovered by Dr. Albert Hoffman, who was a chemist uh, at, at Sandoz. He was riding home and he he liked to test the molecules that he was working on. And after getting home, he realized that there was something very powerful in the experience uh, that he had with LSD. And I think the reason that they've been stigmatized is simply due to headlines that happened in the 1960s. It probably wasn't a great, great idea to give everybody a bunch of LSD and, and ask them to go off and fight a war in Vietnam at the time. And so, I think what what we're still dealing with as an industry is psychedelics do have this stigma, but in many ways they can be deeply therapeutic. And we talk about psychedelics, but really what it is is psychedelic assisted therapy. Uh, There is a therapy component to it. You will take a psychedelic, you will sit with a therapist or psychiatrist, and they're guiding you through an experience to realize why you are having some of these underlying causes to your addiction to your anxiety, to your depression, to your PTSD. Uh, And ultimately, this is the new paradigm. To use a drug in combination with therapy uh, ultimately is, is what we are pushing forward as an industry.
1: So, Saad, you have this prolific career in institutional investing. You've been at some of the more Premier places. Uh, why do you? Why are you excited about the psychedelic space as it relates to an investment outlook in psychedelics?
3: Sure. So first of all, Anthony and John, thank you for having me here. Quite frankly, I really miss the uh, the the old Salt conferences, the live conferences that were incredibly informative, insightful, and- uh,
1: We're going to be doing LSD trips at the next one, so I mean- uh, yeah, that, that may not be <laughs> too far LSD,
3: away. A whole LSD
1: boutique over there. But go ahead,
3: son. Tell us why. So, so it's, a, it's a mix, really. Uh, it's a mix of a personal journey for me and um, and an investment sector that makes a hell of a lot of sense for many reasons. So From an investment perspective, um, Anthony, you know, in our previous life, we we ran a a fund of funds that focused a great deal on esoteric strategies, strategies that were very new in their life cycles. We actually sought them out. And in many cases, we seeded many of them. Um, You know, strategies like reinsurance and weather derivatives and commercial litigation finance and music royalty business, pharmaceutical royalty business. That's one that Kind of dovetails very well with what's going on here. But a key aspect of that was that these strategies were quite new in their life cycle, and, and a lot of the capital initially stayed away because they found it complex. So, what we did was we put these strategies together in a portfolio for investors, predominantly institutional investors, and said, We will manage the complexity for you but there's definite and distinct alpha. It may be fleeting, but the alpha is there. The ability to generate returns greater than what the markets are are delivering. But the best part of it was that these strategies were very uncorrelated to the markets. So in years like 2008, 2011, they did well. When We've been following what's happening in psychedelics for a long time. And what's been driving us to the psychedelics, apart from the personal journey, which I'll get into, is the fact that the science has been incredibly compelling. The efficacy rates here just cannot be ignored. And ultimately, we bet on the fact that everything will follow the science. The money will follow the science. Capital will follow the science. Institutional investors will follow the science. And and it's utterly compelling, right? There have been on three occasions now that the FDA has designated psychedelics as breakthrough designation, BTD. You can go onto the FDA's website and take a look at every instance they've designated anything as BTD. So it's a big deal, which really means that they're saying that, okay, wow, this has a over 70, 75% efficacy rate to treat that particular ailment. Give it the green light. Let it go to phase one. Let it get, you know, let the process start. And, And, you know, there was 2017, 2018, and 2019, twice with psilocybin or magic mushrooms and once for MDMA. So but the the complexity comes in, and when you've got the DEA at the same time saying, "Oh, hold on, sec, like, this is a Schedule I abuse list, and uh, these are harmful, so they need to stay on that list." But as these things get through their 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 clinical trials, which are you know which are fast approaching, they're going to get off the DEA list. So for us, this is a prime example of a strategy: the earliest life cycle, complex. It's mispriced as a result. It's underpriced, right? And, um, and, and the efficacy rates will start to uh, uh, be quite readily apparent to, to the public, to the markets. And these things are going to be priced accordingly. So for us, this is, it's also disruptive, massively disruptive. It makes sense. And, um, and it, there's a seven-year history behind it that people tend to forget. They think it's just something new. This has been going on for a long time.
1: So, so you have, but you have this interesting intersection of activity right now. So, let me read you some of these statistics. Okay, forty million Americans suffering from anxiety annually. Only thirty-seven percent are seeking treatment. You've got eleven percent of the American adults reported seriously considering suicide in June, at the height of the pandemic. Uh, you have the potentiality of 800 million people being out of work as a result of automation coming, and you've got the addictive disorders. The opioid crisis costs two and a half trillion dollars to America. At least that's the projection over the next four years. Um, how can this help? Tell me. Tell me. Tell me the. Uh, Tell me, tell me, let, let, let me ask you that. I'm a person who has anxiety, I've contemplated suicide. What would be the therapy, JR? What what am I doing? I, I come to MindMed and then what happens?
2: So so MindMed's still developing drugs, right? We're we're going through an FDA federally regulated process, and, and I hope that we can eventually help folks that have considered suicide and 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 also have anxiety. So we're Our our project, Lucy, um, which is LSD-assisted therapy, went to the FDA in December for a pre-IND meeting. And we sat down with them and said, look, we think that LSD-assisted therapy uh, can be used with folks that are having uh, generalized anxiety disorder or anxiety, uh, and we want to conduct some clinical trials around that. And so they gave us a very, uh, it was a, a very successful meeting. We had a very open dialogue. Uh, we didn't originally anticipate that it was going to be so open because LSD has a stigma. But I think what's what's interesting at the FDA is they're very open to uh, conducting these clinical trials because the FDA focuses on two things. It doesn't focus on politics. It focuses on is something safe and is something effective. And... That's really important because the mental health dilemma and situation of America right now is far worse than the political divide we we currently have. I mean, 11 percent of Americans considered suicide in the month of June. That's up double from what it was a year ago before COVID started. This is we need novel solutions and treatment paradigms. And so eventually what we want is for you to come to a clinic or in the comfort of your own home and be have a psychedelic experience using LSD-assisted therapy with uh, either a trained psychiatrist or therapist that that will you know guide you through this experience. We also are working on some interesting tech that if the experience, you know, one of the major things, Anthony, that people ask me is, well, what if, what if the trip is too much for me? You know, I have anxiety, and I have considered suicide. But what if this experience that you're, you're suggesting to me as a medicine is just too much? How do we stop the trip? So one of the things that we're working on is, is an LSD trip stopper. Um, and it will effectively allow a therapist or psychiatrist, uh, if the experience is getting out of hand, uh, if you as a patient aren't feeling comfortable, we can actually stop it it's not our preference to, but we feel that in, in order to get mass adoption by both psychiatrists and potential yeah, patients. And
1: you're, you're giving somebody a kill switch if they need yeah. it. But So, uh, you know, and I was mentioning this to Saad before we started our salt talk. There's a fabulous new biography on Cary Grant. Uh, Scott Ehrman just wrote it, uh, new information. He was using LSD. He was suffering from anxiety, suffering from depression, and he was using LSD with the help of a psychotherapist back in the thirties and forties. And it was revelatory for him and it helped him break the cycle of anxiety and depression. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, how does it do that for either of you? How, how does it break that cycle? What, what, what happens to the mind
2: with a psychedelic that would cause that uh, breakage? So I think there's two two things, and I'll let Saad also answer, but I think the, the two main components that one should really look at here is around neuroplasticity of the brain. Um, actually breaking the patterns that of of rumination, for example, on anxiety or depression, those things that are making you anxious. Uh, actually looking at, you know, and talking through the underlying cause of, of why they are creating anxiety. For me, you know, I discovered in an LSD experience that the reason that I was consuming lots of cocaine and alcohol was really to numb myself from the death of my mother when I was an eight year old child. And those aren't things that you think about every day. And it certainly wasn't something that I thought about. Um, and so what we talk about is, a, is another term called ego dissolution, which we find uh, we're, we just did a phase one study in Switzerland uh, with our collaboration with the University Hospital Basel that really looked at what is the ideal dose of LSD uh, to actually achieve something called ego dissolution, which is allows you really to to self-reflect and and think outside of your your day-to-day ego. Um, and so was, again, I'm gonna stop you JR if you're okay. Absolutely.
1: So when you say ego dissolution, yeah it means that we have this ego, which is this fortified layer, it's a husk around our brains, yes. and our personality that mm-hmm. protects us from the outside world. You know, it's our self talk. It's our Kevlar self-confidence. It's our layer of protection. When you create ego dissolution now, you're able to observe yourself in your most natural state uh, in terms of the way you came in to the world through nature, as opposed to these environmental behavioral protections that you've developed. Is that fair to say?
2: Yeah, I think it helps break down that Kevlar. I mean, I think what I realized in my experiences was that we're just all children wrapped in Kevlar. You know, we get more and more expensive Kevlar as life goes on, Um, but really, what that experience is doing is exactly what you say—breaking down that husk. And uh, I think that's something that people rarely ever do: the self-reflection. I mean, that was one of the more
1: scary revelations for me that when you become an adult, you're just an overgrown child. Okay, and so then you're like, oh God, some of these overgrown children have the nuclear code. So then you start really worrying. (laughs) So you said it, not me sad have you ever done LSD?
3: Uh I have,
1: yes. So and my, what, was your, what was your experience with
3: it? was very much as as JR suggested, it was a a a melting into the entire cosmos or with the entire cosmos and an overwhelming feeling of, of oneness. So so my journey, Anthony, started in college, but not in the way that that you think. Um I, I did my undergrad in economics and finance and political science, but I spent all my electives studying esoteric philosophy. So I was passionate about the Kabbalah as it pertained to Judaism and Sufism as it pertained to Islam and Gnosticism and Rosicrucianism, Hermeticism, Gurdjieff, Blavatsky, so on. And then that somehow led me to want to learn the whole science behind energy, frequency, and vibration. So I studied quantum physics. And what I found particularly interesting in quantum physics is that you need to have an observer or consciousness present in order to determine whether the electron is going to behave as a particle or a wave or both. So my question was, what if you alter that state of consciousness? And that's exactly what psychedelics do. They alter the state of consciousness. But if you alter the state of consciousness, theoretically, should your entire reality change? And according to the math, you know, there's a strong case for that, of course, that reality actually changes itself.
1: Well, does it, does it, does it always change for the
3: better or could your reality change? For no, the I, I think what, I think what psychedelics do really is that they amplify the unconscious. That's what really happens, right? You, it, it sort of shuts off the, the default mode, uh, uh, network, right. In, in, in our, in our brain. So that's where ego is. That's where memories are. That's where it's our sense of who not, we are. does
1: meditation mode. also do that? Is meditation a way to get there as well?
3: Yes. Think of it like a pyramid. So meditation can get you there. You can start anywhere at the bottom of the pyramid, but when you get to the top, you're all getting to the same point. So meditation can do that. Slev, you know, beating, Getting beaten almost to death can do that. Some major massive stress can do that. Spending 40 days and 40 nights in the desert can do that, right? You see where I'm going with this? So there, there's, there's a lot of other factors that can play that can get you into an altered state of consciousness. Psychedelics do that as well. But the key thing with psychedelics is that they really amplify the unconscious. I want to go back to something that JR mentioned earlier on, which is this whole notion that psychedelics are not the panacea. They're not the, they're not the, the whole, it's not the holy grail. They are simply a catalyst. They are the key that opened the door, but you've still got to open the door and walk through it. But if you're walking through the door and you're in a room with an 800 pound gorilla, that's pretty scary. What psychedelics do is that they reduce the size of that problem down to a bite size, which is much more manageable. And it allows you to deal with that issue, whatever that issue may be, your own personal traumas. It could be ancestral trauma. It could be whatever. And now you're in a position to deal with it. And that's what has been profound. And that's where the research has really come in to show that.
2: When's When's the last time you did cocaine, JR? Last time I did cocaine would have been two years ago. Um, after I really embarked on um, you know, being, you know, going through a few different psychedelic experiences and realizing that I had a beautiful daughter, had a great life, and there was absolutely no reason to put this stuff up my nose.
1: And so the psychedelic experience of, you know, so you, you said, OK, I've got to get off of cocaine. This is ruining my life. And so the psychedelic experience, uh, I'm going to tie both of you in here in a second. So what Sad is saying is this ego dissolution, you're in that state where your subconscious is raised, raised up, and you're starting to recognize all the great things that you have in your life. And so is that enough to overcome the biochemical or the mental addiction
2: to the cocaine? Well, I think there's two, I think you're dealing with two things, right? Um, I think there's a need for an experiential therapy, like, like LSD. Which which gets you to the point, or or a few that gets you to the point of under understanding what is the underlying cause of my addiction. You know, for me, it was it was the death of my mother. Right, um, I needed to go through that experience. Now, there is a lot of science. If you look at Volkov's work at the National Institute on Drug Abuse that looks at dopamine and how uh, dopamine is is a, is a huge driver of addiction. And so, another thing that we're working on is called 18MC. Uh, it's derived from a psychedelic called Ibogaine. Uh, and what we're trying to do is create the antibiotic of addiction. As an addict, you, you know, when you do a line of cocaine, you get that great sense of euphoria. That's actually a spike in, in dopamine in your brain. And over time, if you do that too many times, you're depleting the amount of overall available dopamine in your brain. And so your baseline dopamine level that makes you feel good and normal actually goes down. And so as an addict, you are no longer uh, doing a line of cocaine, in my case, to get high. I could do an eight ball of cocaine and feel just kind of normal. I wasn't I didn't feel high. And so, for people on here, that an eight ball
1: is eight grams of cocaine. That's a very large amount of cocaine. Uh, And, uh, you know, somebody new to cocaine wouldn't be able to do that right away. They wouldn't have enough of a resistance to your point, their dopamine levels wouldn't be low enough even, right?
2: Correct. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't doing that in one, one sitting, but I, I think it, it it makes a point that you're, you're really depleting that dopamine in your brain. And somehow we need to bring that level back up in an addict. And eventually we want to get a person to a point where you know, they can have a glass of wine, maybe one glass of wine, if, if, if you are an addict and, and still have a normal life. I think that's, you know, there's right well, because that one glass of wine
1: could trigger you. So the Alcoholic Anonymous exactly. people talk about abstinence because they're afraid that you're going to get triggered. The glass of wine lowers your inhibition. You're like, OK, let me go to the coke.
2: Yeah, but there's no solutions right now for cocaine on the market. Zero. Uh, for opioids, you have methadone, which is just a little bit less harmful narcotic. Uh, we're not moving the needle, no pun intended there, uh, right. uh, uh, to, to get people better. You're just putting them on something that is a little bit less addictive, uh, or sorry, more addictive, but less harmful to their bodies. And so I think this is a, you know, a huge issue we got to deal with as a country as well. The opioid crisis is going to cost this country two and a half trillion dollars over the next four years. I mean, yeah, these
3: are small problems. If, if I can just add to that, um, Anthony, like, Obviously the the opioid crisis and mental health is the real epidemic here. I mean, that's the biggest problem and and it's getting worse and worse. There There are 300 people in the US dying a day now of just drug overdose. And it's never been this bad ever. Uh, suicide rates amongst the men between the age of 45 and 55 is going up. Teenage suicide rates are going up. And everything that's out there in the market that we just talked about, SSRIs, SNRIs, they're all trying to treat the symptoms, but nothing out there is going after the root cause. There's been very little innovation in any of these, stuff, any of these other uh, SSRIs and SNRIs since it came out in the 80s with Prozac. So no innovation. These drugs are off their patent cliff. There's not much of an interest from big pharma as a result to take a look at these. They're focused more on oncology and that's why there's this vacuum created. But quite frankly, because of the political sort of initiatives that underwent in the seventies that really derailed this process, we're finally coming back with a hell of a lot of information and a lot of actual sort of you know, uh, 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 um, uh, cases of, of individuals that have overcome their addiction. You know, Gabor Matty, who's who's a a, a, a doctor up in, in Vancouver, who's been helping heroin addicts his, his entire career, talks about and says, "What does it really mean for a heroin addict to be on heroin?" And this is the first time I ever heard something that really put it in perspective. He said, "For heroin addicts, it's like when they're heroin when they're on heroin, right? Their mother is giving them a warm blanket, and and." You know, really nurturing them, giving them a, a hot bowl of chicken corn soup or or chicken noodle soup, and and just you know being there with them. That's what they feel. So, what's happening in the brain is if you can substitute heroin for something that makes you feel just as satiated and just as nurtured and loved, that the promise there has been what psychedelics and in particular plant medicine have been able to offer. So, and what? Yeah, sorry, go ahead.
1: No, 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 no. I mean, I, I, I was going to thread both of you together. I'm going to turn it over to John in a second, because I know he has a series of questions from our audience. But what you're basically saying is we have in front of us something that could help our addiction disorders. It got derailed due to politics and the sociology around psychedelics in the 60s. But had we just progressed the scientific research, we could have gotten to the point where we are now, where this could be a therapeutic that could solve a lot of these problems, uh, abate some of the $2.5 trillion that you're suggesting on the opioid crisis and things like that. And there's a market opportunity for this, Sot. right? Fair enough. This would be a very profitable line of pharmacology, if you will, because it's obviously solving great societal problems. And you guys are at the forefront of this. Okay. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to John because uh, we got to get ratings. Okay. So for some reason, the two of you are old fogies. Apparently now I'm an old fogey, which, you know, I find revolting and he's a millennial. Okay. So for some reason he gets ratings and so forth. So we have to bring him into the conversation at this point. Otherwise we probably won't get the ratings that we want. So go ahead, Darcy. You, I know you have questions for these guys.
0: Yes, Saad, I want to build on what Anthony was just talking about in terms of the social stigma attached uh, to psychedelics today. And we had a long conversation uh, when we were first planning out this salt talk uh, about your personal experiences with psychedelics and how it transformed your state of consciousness. Uh, But in general, in terms of how society looks at psychedelics, you made it very clear and JR made it very clear that you're not looking to be cannabis 2.0. This is not a movement about legalizing LSD or other psychedelics for recreational use. This is specifically about the medical use and supervised use uh, of, of clinical uh, psychedelic treatments. Could you talk about where we are sort of in the regulatory and social acceptance of psychedelics and, and how you strive to be different from the cannabis movement?
3: Sure, so so uh, first and foremost, you, you know, when, when folks talk about cannabis and psychedelics, I quite frankly uh, don't really get it, and and they're they're completely two two different paradigms altogether. You know, cannabis is all about a, a recreational play. It's been a movement that's been going on for a while. Um, there, it's linked to so many other political issues, recidivism, you know, the, the the incarceration rates and so on. But it's a it's a it's a recreational play, right? That's where the real revenue is. What's happening in psychedelics is a pharma play. This is about biotechnology. It's about creating an entirely new ecosystem um, as well around it because it's not just a take this pill and it'll solve your problem. It's about creating the therapy around it. It's about the set and the setting, the intentions, you know, and it's about post, you know, post-session integrative science, which is what now I've had my psychedelic experience. How do I make sense of everything that I've just, you know, experienced and I've seen, and I've just sort of sensed and, and how do I now take that and, you know, and, and, and live my day-to-day life with, with, you know this 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 issue that I'm carrying, and and they need help with that. So, so that's what's wonderful about this about what's happening in this renaissance movement because it's there's a whole infrastructure that's going to be born out of it. There's the therapist, there's the supply chain, there's the upstream, the midstream, and the downstream uh, side of the equation is the whole supply chain endeavor. So it, that's you know this is going to be. A, a multi multi-billion dollar industry which is going to go into trillions of dollars i have no doubt about it in due course over the next you know seven to ten years for sure now um the, the one way your it, personal experience side you know before we go any further what yeah. really uh, it really resonated
0: with me when we sure. spoke again when we were planning this this salt talk about your personal experience we heard from uh, jr about how in his personal life how psychedelics have been able to heal uh some of these issues that that were latent in his consciousness, but tell us about your experience with
3: ayahuasca. Right. So my my first experience with psychedelics was at the age of thirty eight. You know, I I was one of those just a uh, uh, nerdy geeky guys that was reading a whole lot about altered states of consciousness because that's where that you know esoteric studies and quantum physics sort of led me to. And I read one of the authors, his name is Graham Hancock, who wrote a profound book called Supernatural. And all he was trying to do was trying to explain why is it that cave art, which is 50,000 years old, found in South America, found in Australia and in Europe, um, you know, vast distances from each other, resemble and have the same sort of features. Um, And his conclusion was, um, uh, through great research, was that these were done by individuals that had had some form of a psychedelic experience, and then they drew this. And so there were distinct patterns that were recognizable throughout, uh, regardless of your ethnic background, your upbringing, ethnicity. So that was fascinating. I contacted Graham, and we became good friends, and he invited me down to Brazil, So I went down to Brazil in 2009. Like I said, I was 38 years of age, never had any psychedelics before and spent two weeks down there trying to understand the Shipibo traditions and their ways. Um, And there were a bunch of other professors and anthropologists there and a few individuals that were suffering from stage four cancer, stage three cancer and other mental health issues. What I saw there was profound, not only in terms of the journey that I went through and and, and what I saw on, on, you know, through ayahuasca, uh, but in particular, the stage four cancer, ovarian uh, cancer patient is still living. Uh, the stage three cancer, pancreatic cancer patient is still in remission. Um, and and, and I, there was a suicidal ideation case there. Uh, that individual is still living. So I knew that there was something to do here, but I didn't know as an investment management professional what the hell I could do. It wasn't an industry then. There was not much to do in terms of investing in this space. Until we saw what happened in, in 2017, 2018 with what you know compass and mind meant. Mind meant uh, just for the record was our first ever investment. We've made 19 investments in the space, seen over 250 different opportunities, been very selective and um, you know and, and and now this is an industry that you you've got you've got you know well over 30 publicly traded companies in in, in this space um, there are 400 uh, private companies that are that are in the space working on 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 various molecules or aspects of this industry so it's it's now become a, an industry that can invite a lot of capital and that's what we've seen so, so that's the personal journey that kind of got me to the point where I, I just didn't know what to do about that experience, but I knew that it was profound at so many different levels. For me personally, I can just say, and obviously this is, this is very subjective, um, my tolerance levels went up. I became a better father. I became a better husband. I became a better son, a better coworker. My fears went away um uh my fear of death my whole relationship with death and understanding of death went away a lot of my inhibitions went away so it made me a lot more grounded it made me a lot more in touch with with everything and just a just a a, a healthier individual what i call a much much wealthier individual so that that's my personal journey there
0: Thanks for sharing that, uh, Saad. Jr. I want to move to you. Uh, Saad talked about the size of this psychedelics movement, and you know, MindMed is not the only player in the space. You're one of the larger players, but could you talk about uh, just the growth of the psychedelics market, institutions that have started to come on board, and exciting uh, growth prospects that you're seeing within the psychedelics industry?
2: Well, look, I think, um Really, 2020 was was the start of the, the you know the publicly listed uh, component of the space, and you saw uh, both ourselves and Compass go public that the, in 2020. Um, all you know, both achieving unicorn uh, status in, in terms of valuation, along with a tie. Um, so there's really a, a clear you know pack in front um, when it comes to, to ourselves and, and other more upstarts in, in the space. Um, but what I think, you know, when we talk about psychedelic medicines as an, as a new asset class in in biotech, it's also uh, in many ways, a new paradigm for how we're treating mental health. And we're doing a really bad job of treating mental health in America. It's the bastard child of the American healthcare system. Um, 60% of us counties don't have a psychiatrist. 80% of our SSRI or antidepressant medications that are prescribed, which aren't really, uh, you know, helping people in in many instances, uh, are prescribed by doctors, you know, just normal GPs uh, that that are your family doctor. They have no specialization in, in psychiatry. And so what I think the overall blue sky opportunity here in psychedelics is not just, the, the drug trials that, that are that are undergoing here, I think it is that they will be catalysts for building out further infrastructure to retool how we treat mental health in America. And uh, I, you know I think we, we, we spend just under $300 billion dollars a year uh, on behavioral health in America. We're going to need far more than that spending wise uh, to treat some of the issues that are coming out of here. Forty percent of Americans, you know, had some form of a mental health issue or an addiction during COVID, uh, th- these, these problems aren't going away. If you look just even at rat park models, uh, wh- which are you know, where they took two sets of rats and they put one set in isolation and the other they allowed to run around in a little city, the consumption of addictive substances went up 18-fold. We just had the largest rat park model in human history just happen to us with all of these lockdowns. The lingering effects of COVID-19 on our mental health as a society and globally, uh, to me, the, the pandemic is going to turn into a mental health epidemic. And it's, it's good that companies like us exist uh, and that we're rethinking how, how we treat mental health uh, in this country and globally.
0: So Saad, building on what JR just said, why did you go out and start Noetic to tackle these issues that you're seeing in society as well?
3: Thanks, um, John. Sure. So um, Noetic was a very organic endeavor. Really, it was three partners coming together, realizing that this is a space that we wanted to get involved in. We saw what was happening with Compass, with Ati Life, Sage Therapeutics, Perception, Life Sciences, and we wanted to invest. So we pooled our own capital together. Um, uh, Our first investment, as as I mentioned, was MindMed. Um, and uh, we just started to grow the portfolio and slowly we started to attract family members and friends and they said well what are you up to and what are you doing and we're like well we're very excited about this space but not for everybody but um, but we think it's going to be huge and and that just gen- and it really just grew from there we, we, you know we've got a fund now that has assets under management of about 40 million we've made 19 investments uh, we've had a few realizations as well that has generated 189% return profile. So it's an exciting area for sure, but it's it's really moving at breakneck speed. And there are five companies in our portfolio that are public. We only invest in private, right, uh, that have gone public. There are about four or five more that are slated to go public. So this market is, is moving fast. Obviously, the public markets are responding very favorably to psychedelics as well because It's actually getting to the root cause of the issues and solving the problem, as opposed to just treating the symptoms. And everybody's sort of following up on the science. Now, what's particularly pertinent is that when you get CNN, 60 Minutes, New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, all start to report on psychedelics in a very favorable light, you know that this is beyond just a fad or a trend or a movement. This has really, you know, taken off. And, and, uh, and so ours was an organic endeavor, which, you know, we've, we've closed our first fund. We're going to be launching a second fund, which is more for institutional investors. And that's why I feel that platforms such as this are very, very important. We need to, this industry needs to get the institutional investors involved here. And they are taking note there's a first ETF that just went up, Horizons ETF on psychedelics. There are going to be more that are going to follow. So certainly institutions are perking up to this, but institutions really need to pay attention to what's going on, pay attention to the science, and play a meaningful role going forward. And that's what we want to try and help and support.
0: And JR, we have a couple minutes left. I want to finish with you talking about the regulatory side. So where are we? Are you more optimistic now with a new administration coming in that might be a little more open-minded to these treatments? And in specific states, what type of measures and and progress have we seen adopted that give you hope about, you know, the future regulatory environment for psychedelic treatments?
2: Well, I think, uh, think, you know, with the incoming Biden administration, and, you know, let's see how that goes. uh, uh, But, you know, the the blue wave that uh, you know could could be undergoing here, I think, is is positive for the the psychedelic space. I think there's going to be more spending on behavioral health and mental health. I think uh, the opioid crisis was was attacked by the Trump administration. Right, they came out and they declared war on it. Uh, we have more opioid deaths uh, this year than we did when 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 the the, the outgoing administration started. So. Still very big problems to solve. Um, but what I think is interesting uh, is that the space is becoming far more institutional. Uh, when I first started fundraising for MindMed, nobody really took me seriously in Silicon Valley. They just didn't think that this space was was going to be possible. Um, there were early folks like Sods Noetic Fund and and others that, that took some big bets on us and, and were rewarded handsomely uh, as as we went public this year. We're starting to see... Uh, you know, lots of uh, the hedge fund community from in, in New York com- come into this space in a very, very big way. Um, you know, f- there are characters that are in the in 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 billions uh, the the series that are you know going on ayahuasca sessions. Well, the real life folks that uh, you know are, are 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 the basis for those characters are investing in companies like ourselves. And uh, you know, I think that's just an overall destigmatization, but also a wake up from Wall Street that mental health and addiction can be a very big industry, and unfortunately, it's probably going to be a boom industry uh, because of of what's transpired here in lockdown and COVID. But coming back to your question around on the regulatory uh, framework that we work under, and and what's ongoing in the United States currently. Everything that we do needs to be federally compliant. Our institutional investors require it. Uh, We 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 have taken investments from from some very big institutions that you know manage academic institutions' money, and so anything that we do needs to be federally compliant. It was a promise I made to one of our first seed investors, Kevin O'Leary. He he had no involvement in the cannabis space uh, because they weren't going and approaching. Um, their space in a federally compliant manner. So everything we do is at the through an FDA pathway, uh, or if we do a, a drug trial overseas it's it's through a, a nationally uh, registered um, health regulator. But there is movements, uh, there are movements. Uh, for example, in Oregon, you, you saw measure 109 pass. I think the reason that this measure passed and just to clarify what that is, it, it basically, weegled uh, legalized uh, the use of psilocybin therapy um, in in the state of Oregon it has a two-year hiatus before it can come into effect um, we think this is a positive step in the right direction but our ambition as a company is to make uh, medicines for all Americans that are scalable uh, and and a an institutional grade business and so we need everything to be federally compliant and we find that the FDA pathway is going to be the most efficient pathway to to achieve that for both our shareholders uh, and our patients. Um, We don't want a a scenario where it's legal in one state, but it's not legal in the other. Uh, That doesn't doesn't really build a big business or help a lot of people. Our our objective is to heal people. Um, So I think those are positive movements, but I think what people and investors should really be looking at, are not the political process that are behind psychedelics. They should be looking at the data and the science, the safety and the efficacy, because uh, that's what the FDA cares about. And we think that's the most efficient pathway. And, and the FDA is very receptive to, to what we are working on here. And they should be, because these are very, very large problems in society uh, that we need to solve over the next few years uh, after this, this uh, pandemic closes up.
0: And another piece that resonated with me when we were talking before uh, we did this session was SSRIs, which are a common uh, prescription for people that are suffering from a variety of different ailments, whether it be addiction, anxiety, depression, the efficacy rates of those drugs are very, very low. Uh, I think somewhere between 10 and 30%. Uh, So this provides another alternative that really gets to the root causes, as opposed to the the type of experimentation you see uh, with SSRIs.
2: Yeah. Thanks so much. Go go
0: ahead, Jr. Just comment on that briefly.
2: Yeah, SSRIs are are also highly addictive. Um, You know, they're not uh, they're not easy things to get off of, and 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 so it's something to consider. Um, You know, these the the substances that we're working on. If you look at the toxicity, um, you know, we still have a lot of preclinical work that we need to do across different psychedelic molecules, but. these are relatively non-toxic substances that 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 we're dealing with um and and uh e- relatively easy to to get drug trials up and running in the phase 1 and phase 2 um,
1: yeah
3: and 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 just an important note it, it, without any physiologically addictive properties that's a very important feature right that that right so
0: Well, JR, Ron, and Saad Shah, thank you so much for joining us today on Salt Talks. These are the type of topics we love to dive into. It's an emerging asset class from an investment perspective, and it's something with huge potential returns, not just on investment capital, but of human capital, and the ability for us to finally start addressing this epidemic, as JR referred to, of mental health issues that has only been exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, So thank you so much for joining us. We look forward to reprising this conversation either in the future on Salt Talks or like you mentioned, Saad, earlier, at one of our in-person conferences uh, potentially later this year. So looking forward to that, and thank you so much for joining us.
3: Thank you, John. Thank you, Anthony. Thank you, JR. Nice. Thank
0: you. Thank you, everybody who tuned in to today's SALT Talk uh, on psychedelics. It's, it's definitely an interesting topic that we're looking forward to exposing more people on. Uh, if you missed any of this episode, you can always access our archive of SALT Talks on our YouTube channel or on our website at salt.org backslash talks backslash archive. And uh, You can also sign up for all of our future talks at salt.org backslash talks. Please tell your friends about Salt Talks. We love growing our community. If you found this conversation interesting, uh, please refer people to our website, salt.org, where they can participate both in our conferences and in these Salt Talks. And please follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. On behalf of the entire Salt team, this is John Darcy signing off for today. We'll see you back here
1: again tomorrow on Salt Talks.